It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 30 years. Well, before we go to tonight's show, I do want to remind our listeners that our website, DougAndLinda.com, DougAndLinda.com, is available for you to go to to see uh, some of the faces behind the voices, to get a lot of more information. And also we'd like to remind our listeners, those that are coming in for appointments in the next week or two, that we are offering three books. One, The Wealthy Barber. Two, Middle Class Millionaire. Three, Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth. We're giving those books out to individuals who call in and make appointments. And this past week, we did have a chance to give away several of those books. So we're reminding our listeners again, that's waiting for you. Also call us tonight. We have... Lots of answers for lots of questions. You're yeah. listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. And Linda, our number at the office is 919-872-7000. If you'd like to call us and if you hear something tonight that sounds like your situation, leave a message and we'll set up an appointment. Now, I think we have a caller coming in from uh, named Mike. Let's take Mike's call. And then after Mike's call, if we have time, I'd like to address estate planning for the chronically ill. But let's take Mike's call. Hello, Mike, are you there? This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, Linda Lewis. How can we help you? Yes, Doug. I'm one of those who got into, got put into the annuities. My guy gave me, put me in three annuities. uh, And I have a question. I I don't know. I'm at 65. I'm set. I don't know what to do. All right, first of all, what's the uh, on every statement that you get, it tells you what is the surrender value. So what's the surrender value of your three annuities? Uh, let's see, 41, 185. I think the three together are about 350,000. All right, $350,000. Now, <clears throat> what that is, that is a contract between you and an insurance company and let's assume that you die and have not started to annuitize. Right. Then your uh, it could go to your wife and it does not have a problem with no tax, but if she doesn't do anything, it goes to your children, then there may be as much as $100,000 in taxes. Gotcha. All right. Uh, if this was $350,000 in mutual funds, not in an annuity, then it could be it could go with zero tax. Gotcha, gotcha. 
because the annuity is an insurance contract that actually does not qualify for step-up in basis. Now, knowing that you have this $350,000 in these three annuities, the question then comes, what should you do with them? I would say do not annuitize. Right. That's my question. Do not annuitize because when you annuitize, you are, I like to talk about chickens and eggs when I'm explaining investments in my office to clients. The investment itself is a chicken. So you've got a $350,000 chicken. The income is the eggs. When you annuitize, you are signing an agreement between yourself and the insurance company that says, I will give you, Mr. Insurance Company, all of my chickens. You give me a guaranteed stream of eggs, and when I die, you keep everything. You keep all my chickens. That's the annuitization. Oh, I'm glad I have not done that. And that's irreversible, by the way. Once you have done that, that is irreversible. Okay. Now, if you say, well, gee, my wife didn't get anything, then they will tell you, well, I'll tell you what we can do, Mike. If you want to have your wife get some of the eggs after you die, we'll give you a smaller stream of eggs while you're alive. And if you say, well, what about, uh, I want her to have the same amount as myself, then they'll say a smaller one. These are the different options that they have. But the biggest check that they'll give you is if you give them the right to keep all of it. So what should you do? You should more than likely tell me what the rest of your investment portfolio is, and I think I know where you should go. But tell me the rest of your portfolio. What do you have? You said you're all right. You're 65 years old. 65. I have real estate, uh, a couple houses, and uh, everything's paid for. All right. Uh, do you have anything in any investment accounts of your own? Any mutual funds, CDs, cash, or anything like that? Uh, cash. I've got cash, some cash, and. Uh, a, few, a little of mutual fund. All right. About how much do you have in those two categories total? Probably 65000 All right. How about anything in retirement accounts, IRAs or 401Ks or retirement accounts? None. Okay. The real estate you have, how much is in the real estate? Probably three, probably 600000 600000 in real estate. And this is not your residence. This is income-producing real estate. No, it's it's really houses that I'm 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 going to move into, and yes, they will become income producing. Yes. Okay, these are investments. Yes. Actually, what I'd recommend is you call my office and set up an appointment to meet with me because there are several options. I, what I'd like to see you do is to roll or come out of the annuities to where you have the 350000 available. I'd like to then start to build an investment portfolio of the portion of the houses that you're able to. I'd like to see how the whole thing comes together to protect both you. How old is your wife? 63. All right. Uh, has she started Social Security yet? Yes. Good. She's disability. I am also. All right. What is the what's the combined income you're getting on the two Social Securities? Probably twenty seven hundred dollars a month. Twenty seven hundred a month. And hold on one second. He's doing some calculations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Did so let me look, ask you a question. Go Did ahead. The ask person him. that sold you these insurance no 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 they were given by his his father remember oh no no, no i'm sorry i misled you then they were uh, uh it was a financial planner 
a financial planner <laughs> led me to this individual to this product. Yes. Oh. Yes. I guess I'm, what I was wondering was, did the did the financial planner ever disclose to you how much they were paid when they? No. When yeah. they did the, the transaction. Re, yeah, the, the reason annuities are so popular, and, and there's a saying in the industry that says uh, annuities are not purchased, they're sold. Yes. Uh, because they are. They're one of the highest commission products. They can be as much as 8%. So on $300,000, that could be $24,000 of commissions. But what I was going to say is you could design an investment portfolio with the 350000 that would give you about $1,500 a month and still have your chickens intact. Oh, that would be great. Add that to your disability income, and then I'd like to go ahead and look at those uh, investment houses, those rental houses, and see how that comes together. If you will call my office, I don't know, did you have a chance to write that number down? I did. Okay, good. 919-872-7000. Great. And we will set up a time to get together with you, Mike. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Now, right. did you need to uh, speak with our engineer one more time? That would be good for us. Okay. All right. So stay right, on the thank line. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, for calling thank in. Thank you very much. All, All right. right. Have a wonderful week. Thanks. Thanks for calling. A lot of people uh, who are college age have a lot of questions. Doug, what would be some financial advice that you would give to students starting college? Well, I think the question is a very good question. I'll pass it to you, Linda. What do you think would be the first bit of advice you'd give a new college freshman? Well, it's important to set up a student bank account. And I'm sure that if your mom and dad haven't helped you, you've probably done that yourself. Set up this student bank account. Keep track. Make sure to keep track what goes in, what goes out. And make sure that you, as a student, understand all of the account fees and their justification before you sign up. Also, learn to budget and don't overspend. Good advice. I like that. I like that. Start with the matter of budgeting because as you go through your college years and move into the working years, right. the question is going to very much be, how do I get my hands around the whole financial world? So learn to budget. Financial planning starts with budgeting, understanding expenses. And then I would add to that, Linda, Deborah, I would say that start the habit of putting aside 10% of any paycheck that you make working part-time during school. Make the habit. 10% of everything should go into some sort of a savings account or an investment account. And I would say, uh, to add to that, start saving just in general as early as possible. <clears throat> and, and a lot of that saving can be learned through a financial literacy class or even just setting an appointment with a certified financial planner because it will be one of the best investments you'll ever make. And Doug, we, as you know, of course, uh, have had two recent meetings with couples who set the appointment up specifically because they wanted their young adult children to start life with the best financial uh, habits and goals that they could learn in a three-hour session as possible. So often through the years, we have had appointments with clients and right away they say, boy, I wish I had met Uh you 10 years before, (laughs) or I wish I had met you 20 years before. And so, so many of these now are saying, how about a session where you give basic education uh-huh. to my children. Yeah. 
And yeah. it is really rewarding. Yeah, because sometimes the parents themselves have achieved a lot and they would like to pass it on, but they would like it to come from a third party or um, someone with a little bit of uh, maybe different sort of authority. If you start early with this matter of financial literacy, then you can learn the power of setting aside and investing it into, uh, into a mutual fund. This can mean the difference between becoming a millionaire or worrying about becoming what they call the proverbial bag lady. At least at a minimum, you should sit down with your parents or other adults that you connect with and ask them to share some of their best and worst money moves when they were in college. Good advice. Well, thanks, Doug. If you'd like a personal consultation with either Doug, Linda, or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. Well, Doug, there's this rise of ultra cheap financial advisors out there. What is this all about? It's a fast growing trend toward delivering dirt cheap financial advice online, and they're calling them robo advisors. So maybe short for robot advisor or something mechanical or technology based? Yes. These are computer models to provide automated portfolio management for fees of about a quarter of 1% per year. Okay, so at what levels do people kind of get, uh, either get this advice or, or don't? Get the service, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, at the higher levels, let's say you have more than $5 million, Vanguard will actually send an advisor to meet with you face-to-face as needed. But to be sure, if you only have 50000 up to a half a million, let's say the Vanguard's not going to give you a butler to be at your side for every financial decision. But much of the advice is going to be generated automatically by these firms' computers. These are robo-advisors and delivered online. And, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons as people are discussing these. Uh, what about objectives? What's your appetite for risk? And one of the Vanguard program's financial advisors I might talk to you by phone or a video conference to tweak your portfolio. So basically, if you have a very little, a small portfolio or on the low end of the money managed um, spectrum, you're going to be advised by this robot or this computer program. Doesn't sound like very good advice. Yeah, they're very popular. They're getting a lot of press and people are going that way. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with it. Matter of fact, I'm sure I don't agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Doug we know. <laughs> this is bad advice to rely on a what computer. What do they call it? FaceTime. Let's have that's, some face-to-face face right. time with your And I your think advisor. that was the bigger the point that they make is that, you know, if the market crashes, no one's going to plop down on your living room couch and prevent you from doing something rash or helping you out there. So if you really want financial planning, then you really need to see a certified financial planner, someone face-to-face, make an appointment meet with someone because no matter what is going to be invented or uh, developed nothing beats someone sitting there across the table from you asking you what are your goals what are your desires what's your cash flow like what kind of insurance needs do you need you know are you thinking about how about the children do we need to pay for college what about the parents I mean the list goes on and on Linda doesn't it it certainly does and I would imagine that uh Many of the individuals that are participating in these robo-advisor enticements are, you know, um, the average person Uh out there that's a professional that is very uh, uh, computer-driven and 
and it, you know, it's inviting. And I think it is good on the one hand that people are looking at financial planning. But on the other hand, as you said, Deborah, I would agree with you and Doug that um, it's important that both spouses be involved in Very the financial planning process. And if you're going to, you know, uh, most of the, the folks, our listeners that have come to us through our radio program and in our financial planning practice, they're average families that right. are working diligently day in, day out, year in, decade out. And they're accumulating and they're taking care of their children. And at some point, they're going to retire. But because they have questions about their situation, mom and dad don't always see eye to eye. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think the eye to eye can't be seen using a robot. Exactly. Uh, I think the real problem facing today's middle class families is not that they need a quicker or less expensive way to get an appropriate mix of relatively uncorrelated asset class categories, which is the way the robo-advisor is going to do it. Okay. The, the problem for most is not inadequate asset allocation strategies or even inferior investment products. It's not even that human advisors are too slow and costly when compared with some sort of online-based algorithm. Rather, the issue for most middle-class families is that they don't save and invest in any meaningful way. And that can't be solved with any automated planning tool or less expensive online investment product or services. What these families need is to adopt fundamentally different behavior strategies in their struggle to attain the financial goals that they want for themselves. Right. I mean, you've got to definitely save and invest. And if you are if you if you're tempted, if the temptations of consumers consumerism are just too big for you, then that's going to be your biggest impediment to developing positive and disciplined financial behavior. Yeah, you don't realize it, but the whole uh, financial planning aspect has to include help helping the clients ignore the lures of consumerism, cars, TVs, even lattes. The, the whole advertising world is designed to say, enjoy now, spend now, don't think about the future. Right. But the solution for combating these temptations is a distinctly human one. Okay. Not a robo-advisor. Middle-class families need coaching, financial coaching. They need a face-to-face relationship that addresses the behavior that runs counter to the pursuit of long-term financial security. Wow, wow, you know, and I I bet that um, uh, if asked, most people would say probably about 50-50 of people who do have a uh, dedicated financial advisor and of those who uh, do do and don't. Yeah, yeah, the robo-advisors are not competing so much with human financial advisors, but rather with providers of do-it-yourself tools and services and and that's that's another whole world out there but that's different from the financial coach the financial planner what we provide in our firm for so many years so wouldn't you say that what most people need is just more insight and understanding about how they can you know better manage things like oh i don't know your tax withholdings your consumer debt your discretionary spending and just just the ability to liberate a couple of hundred dollars each month to better uh, cover or begin the uh, emergency fund and begin investing absolutely i mean this is the role of the financial planner. All right. these aspects, Deborah, just like you said, right. they are not 
able to be generated by some sort of computerized that's right uh, model Right. I mean, I think that's I think that's what we are. Why we are here on Sunday nights is we want to let all of our listening audience know that we are available now during this hour dedicated for your ability to call in and ask us questions about your financial situation. If anything that we are talking about reminds you of your situation, then it 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 allows you an opportunity to call in and get some free advice. Yes, it does. You know, if you'd like to set an appointment, don't call us on the radio show. Call and leave a message. I'll be by the office later tonight. We'll call you in the morning. We'll set up a time. You have so many questions, and Doug, Linda, and Deborah have the answers. Call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Let's see. I think we have Ray from Cary on hold. Ray, this is Doug Lewis, Deborah Lewis, Linda Lewis. How can we help you this evening? Hello, gentlemen and ladies. Got a question for you. Fire away. Very much appreciate your show. It's great. Thank uh, you. Just a real simple question for you. This is certainly less complicated, I think, than what you normally deal with. But to make a long story short, um, father passed away. Um, mom, of course, is still here, thank God, and she's got the house, but she wants to, you know, basically, since I've been the caregiver for years, um, and, you know, for lack of a, a better explanation, you know, the property she wants to leave to me. Okay. Um, and, you know, the house and everything basically in it. Wanted to find out, um, is there a better situation tax-wise to do that? In other words, instead of just having it in the will that it is for me, um, is there something that, that she should be doing, or me, uh, who is the power of attorney um, for her, um, that would help that situation when, unfortunately, the day comes where that occurs. Right. Very good question. We get it a lot with our clients. Uh, Deborah, you want to start off? Uh, yes. There, there are going to be um, two questions. Uh, the first is going to be, is it going to make a difference if you get it now or you inherit it? And Doug, that's usually where we begin the conversation. Right. We have to get basis and we have to deal with the step up in basis rules. First of all, what did the house cost? The house cost originally, they bought it uh, 96 here in Cary, North Carolina, and I think they paid about $153,000 for the house. It's All right. Probably and worth, at least as far as I can tell right now, in this crazy environment, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 250 All right. All right, uh, so that's going to be what we call your basis. Right. No, the basis is 153000 Yes, sir, 153000 What they paid is going to be what you call your basis. All right. Okay. So now we have to understand that... If she were to give you the house today, Correct. which she could do by deeding it over to you, mm-hmm. then she gives you the value of the home, which is 250000 and she gives you the basis also of 153000 Okay. Now, if you later on, after she passes away, mm-hmm. if you later on sell it, then you will pay tax on $100,000 of capital gains, Assuming that we were just going to use your appreciated value of what it's worth today, two hundred and fifty. Right. So right. that hundred thousand. So that's about twenty. Of, yeah, it's about twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars of taxes. And I don't mean to interrupt you. It, it, the, the you know the situation would be for sure um, without getting into too much because I know we only got so much limited time here. Is that um, you know when she does pass away, um, I am in a financial position. I'm uh, you know partially disabled. Um, and so it would be a situation where I could not afford to keep this house, which I would love to do, but it would be an immediate sale. 
Okay. So okay. I'd have to. I'd have to get out. Right, Very good. All right. So now Deborah's going to tell you the all way right. to sell a tax break. So Ray, yeah. the best thing in your situation, it appears to be, just from the little bit we we know right now, sure. is that if you were to instead were to inherit it mm-hmm. at her death, instead of receiving instead it, of as, receiving a it as a gift during her lifetime, right, you get an immediate step up in basis, meaning. At her death, mm-hmm. you would receive an asset that would be worth the fair market value, or, or you know, as of her date of death. Sure. So now you would have received an asset with a basis of two hundred and fifty thousand, and a value meaning, of two hundred fifty thousand, and a value of two hundred fifty thousand. Right. So when you needed to sell it, you know, a month later after everything's you know settled sure. and everything, right. you now would pay zero. Really? Yes. Taxes. Interesting. If you, because if if we know that the end result is whether it's just a not needed home or we sure. need the assets home, if that if there's definitely that situation, we want to inherit the asset. We want to get the step up in basis. So really, the only expenses that I should incur yes. when, once this occurs is obviously you know the usual stuff that occurs. But if I hire a real estate agent and he gets his or he or she gets the um, you know the usual six percent or whatever it is, um, you know. Is there any other besides, you know? Well, the only other question I would have is, I mean, unless there's a mortgage on it, but yeah, you just sell it and keep the proceeds. There is. Then you. How much is the the mortgage on it now? Yeah, that's that's the the sad part is that, uh, you know, I would say at this point, the house, like I said, is is probably worth 250. And the the amount that's owed right now is probably about 130. All right. So we take. We, 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 we take these three points one at a time. Mm-hmm. First of all, at death, let's say, God forbid, she died this year. Right. All right. $250,000 mm-hmm. is, your, is your home, the fair market value. All right. right. The basis, of course, has been stepped up. So the basis goes from 153 to 250000 So zero tax as far as capital gain to the IRS. There is nothing owed to the IRS. Now, yeah. what about the mortgage company? Okay, right. the they mortgage company. Off, obviously. That's right. They want their portion, which is. Oops, I lost my number. How that's much? Okay, about one hundred and thirty or something. One hundred and thirty thousand. That. That's right. So you get. So you would end up with one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. There'd be no other cost. There might be a little bit of real estate taxes that are owed on it if she hasn't paid the taxes right. on it. Uh, and as you say, the uh, uh, the commission to the real estate broker. But there's no tax. Right. Taking in those three points, Doug, there's no way he would want to have it received during her lifetime. I mean, oh, no, the, no. With, with want, the mortgage yeah. and the tax, you would have eliminated anything. And you obviously. You want to step up in basis. Right. right. So the bottom line is, is leave it just the way it is. Yes, sir. In the will, just that's that. That's right. That way, that way, mom takes care of you after you've been taking care of her. By yeah. the way, you can avoid probate if you haven't already done so by putting it in joint ownership with you and herself, but still, it's in her name. Very good. You guys are very helpful. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for calling tonight. Well, Doug, Linda, when uh, the kids leave and we have this empty nest uh, syndrome or empty nest uh, feeling, a lot of times there is a conversation about whether or not you should sell your home or not. And uh, when people are making this decision, they need to consider lots of pros and cons. So what would be some of your advice? Well, I'm thinking of a widow in her early 50s who did have to tackle this tough question. And the question was, should she keep the big family house with high mortgage payments that symbolize security and comfort for her kids? Or should she sell the house to cut her expenses 
and pursue the dream of leaving her corporate job for interior design school. So, so big, very common. Very, very common. Life changes after you're widowed. Well, while selling the home is sometimes the best option for many women with grown kids, it's not the right choice for everybody, nor is it always the best plan for empty nesters or empty nest men who live alone. I would agree with that, Doug. Yeah, there's no one-size-fits-all answer here. But we do need, first of all, to consider the money issues around the decision. And a lot of things may have changed. Uh, Many breadwinners may have experienced a decline in their income. So with so much at stake, you know, along with, and let's say you're paying for college costs for your kids. With the rising cost of college and retirement, single parents can't afford to put on blinders when it comes to these kinds of financial matters. I'm reminded of a client who was widowed, uh, she was quite young, uh, I think it was about eight or nine years ago when she came to us with four children. Uh And uh, this was her question, one of her questions, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now as life has gone on, Mm -hmm. her situation has changed and everything. Mm -hmm. So there isn't one answer to this. But on the other hand, the home is a big question because very often it's one of the largest financial assets that the widow has to work with. So... Don't try and make this decision on your own. Work with a certified financial planner that can give you the advice after looking at all of the aspects in your own world. You know, there's, um, I would agree with uh, what you've said, Doug, and also you, Deborah, because uh, when a person loses a spouse, uh, it's at a very emotional time. And if you have children, if if they're young, then the home is a, a stable place for them as they're growing up. But even if they're teenagers, it's there's still all that emotion. And if they're college students, they may want to still come home for those holiday uh, weekends or just feeling, you know. Well, you bring up a good point. You have to balance every financial decision with the emotional and family decision. Exactly. You know, that's that's the biggest reason why most financial planning um, appointments at our office tend to be, you know, one half therapist, one half money, you know, counselor. I mean, because it's, it really is. All of this affects our lives. And, and I, for many widows out there, there's a lot of fear about the future. Right. And earlier you mentioned something about feeling like the proverbial bag lady in retirement. Absolutely. That fear. Um, Yeah. And so it's important to, to feel comfort. And, and uh, going back to, you know, what we've spoken about earlier in the show, it's, it, it, it is worth every penny that you pay to work with a fee-based certified financial planner because you will get the comfort that you get your que- questions answered. You can look at the big picture in your situation and you can have the education that you need to make sound decisions. Right, Doug? You're right, Linda, because that was the genesis of this radio show. When we opened up Money Matters with the Lewises back in 1990, our desire was to let the public know that there is a professional out there who's not trying to sell you something, who actually will get into your world and give you the financial advice from all aspects, not only the investment aspects and the matter of selling the home or not selling the home and the matter of income taxes, but all aspects. And that was our desire. That's still our desire. Of course, now Deborah's the lead person giving the same desire, uh, the same advice with the same desire to educate the public that there is a professional who is, is, is educated 
And you know what's interesting is the demographic. I think the the wider uh, there have been a wider number of people in different ages who have wanted this advice. So much so that a lot of those calls that I get, and I had two this week. Deborah, can I set up an appointment to come in because I'm in my 30s. Mm. We've just had our first child. Mm-hmm. We're both employed. We have a home. We don't know about insurance. And you know what? We have been listening, and we know that we need to find out if we're on the right track. Uh, how to stay focused on the end result being 30 years down the line and we don't want to be pushed uh, into a situation of making a bad decision because we just didn't have good advice can we come in and buy a couple hours and ask you about our own situation why yes you can and it's it's what we do all week long it's our love of our of, of, of dealing with all of these, exactly. everyone's personal, individual situations. If you would like to make an appointment with the Lewises, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, many people are confused about the tax consequences of their 401k plan. And uh, so here are a few of the questions I've gathered um, that I would love for you to address tonight. How is it taxed, it being the 401k, when income is withdrawn? And then is the 401k taxed at someone's death? And do the beneficiaries pay income tax on the 401k? All right, let's take them one by one. Yes, sir. A 401k, how is it taxed when the income is withdrawn? Well, it depends if you're under 59 and a half or over 59 and a half. If you're under 59 and a half, When you start taking the income out, then you pay three taxes. You pay North Carolina tax, income tax. You pay federal income tax, and you pay an additional 10% penalty or 10% tax on top of that. So you have these three taxes if you're under 59 and a half. Okay. Now, Now, if you're over 59 and a half, you only have two income taxes, federal income tax and North Carolina income tax. Okay. Okay. So much for... Uh, when income is taken out. All right, how about the 401k at death? That was your second question, Deborah? That was, yes, sir. Okay, at death, the 401k is not actually taxed. Okay. It is not taxed itself. That doesn't mean that the IRS isn't waiting to get a bite out of it. But what happens is, your third question was the beneficiaries. Yes, the beneficiaries have to pay a special tax called IRD, Income in Respect of Decedent. So let's see how that would work. Let's say that it's a uh, a $1 million 401k that's accumulated through these years. Okay. All right. And so dad has a $1 million 401k and he dies and now Junior is inheriting it. All right. If Junior inherits it right away on Junior's income tax statement that year, he has $1 million of IRD or income in respect of the decedent, or to say it another way, it looks as if he made a $1 million salary bonus this year and he is taxed at the, and it, he is taxed at the highest rate. Okay. So that IRD tax is taxed to the beneficiaries just as if it was salary that year. Okay. Now, Okay. The IRD tax would be the would be based on the one million being received as income. That's exactly okay. right. That's exactly right. All right. So now how do my how how would Junior's benef or uh, Junior as the beneficiary well I guess that would be 
That would be the only way. So could he stretch it out or change that receiving that one large lump sum income on his taxes of a million dollars? That's a very interesting uh, option that we do have. We call it a beneficiary. Uh, you roll it into an IRA or you uh-huh. make it an IRA. It can be a beneficiary IRA, a stretch IRA, but you do have the stretch provisions. Okay. Uh, for some people, it's a very good move. For other people, it's not at all a good move. And of course, Doug, what I'm pointing out to uh, anyone listening and, and hoping that it, it, it prompts a question is there's a big difference between being a child beneficiary and a spousal beneficiary. Two different sets of rules, very complex issues. Work with a financial planner when this is your situation and make sure that these kinds of questions are answered uh, before uh, you know before you die but as you're as you're thinking about how to best leave to your wife it's very different than how to best leave to your children well Deborah you just reminded me of the one part that I didn't talk about yes if the 401k is left to your wife then there is no tax benefit there's no tax at all okay it rolls into the wife's IRA there we go if you would like to make an appointment with the Lewis's call Lewis financial management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. All right, well, there was a really interesting article called Should You Trust a Wealth Manager? Deborah, Linda, did y'all see that article? Yes, we certainly did. Did y'all see that? Okay, Mm -hmm. well, let's take a look now. If you have a portfolio of, let's say, a half million dollars or more, then you've probably been approached by financial advisors who are now calling themselves wealth managers offering to manage your money. This wealth management may sound very appealing. You can have all your financial needs taken care of in one place, but in reality, it's a term that many advisors are using to lure you in so they can sell you an array of products and services that you might not even need. And that's because these quote, quote, wealth managers often have incentives to sell you whatever they can or even whatever generates the highest fees instead of what's best for your own financial goals. So let's consider a hypothetical example. We'll take Bob and Mary. Okay. We're going to say they're both 65 years old and they're retired. All right. And they're going to interview two different so-called wealth managers about managing a million-dollar portfolio. Their goal is to have enough money for a comfortable retirement and leave a little to their two kids if there's any money left over. Okay, Linda, what's wealth manager number one going to say? So wealth manager number one is going to recommend that they put 500000 into an annuity and he sells them some long-term care insurance because he's focused on insurance products. And he happens to get an 8% commission on every annuity he sells. Mm -hmm. So he then recommends that they also purchase some mutual fund investments. And he refers them to his buddy, who also does estate planning, knowing that his buddy's going to turn around and send him some referrals. Very good. He might even have a radio show that does that and everything. But you're exactly, that might be wealth manager number one. Okay, Deborah, what's wealth manager number two going to do? So wealth manager number two offers to put together an elaborate financial plan for one fee, an estate plan for another fee, set up a trust for a third fee, and manage their portfolio using a combination of stocks and bonds for yet another fee. He also highly recommends they work with his CPA buddy to develop a tax strategy, knowing his buddy will pay him a fee for that referral. All right. You got it. All right. Y'all got it perfectly. Mm. What's the problem here? The problem lies in the obvious conflicts of interest. Okay. What Bob and Mary really need is a true expert 
with a transparent fee structure and without any incentives to make referrals or sell products. And that's because there is this confusion out there of wealth managers versus financial planning. A comprehensive financial planning approach is very, very important, and it's got to include seven key areas. It's got to include money management, yes. It's got to include financial planning. It's got to include estate planning. It's got to include tax strategies, insurance planning, mortgage or debt management, and banking. And the vast majority of these self-purported wealth managers, they're only offering some of these services But in my opinion, missing any crucial piece or two could have serious implications on your retirement and on your beneficiaries. Wow. So the real story out there is don't get sucked into one of these wealth managers. Okay. And sometimes it's probably just a new packaging of the same thing. And, you know, the the need to have a good financial planner give you solid, objective uh, advice about your subjective situation is the most important part. Well, and and everybody's got to make money <laughs> to support their families. Right. We have no problem with people and, making money, but you need to know. But, it, but you need to, to really look at what are you getting for what you're paying for? And are you paying for the advice that you're getting? Because there are a lot of salesmen out there and there are a lot of folks that are confused about what's being presented to them. I know that, uh, you know, we've had some clients come to us that they had some concerns because they were given a presentation and the end of the story was just like this article said, the guy wanted to sell me an annuity and I don't know what annuity is. And I think by and large, um, you know, these principles that you stated earlier, Doug, these came from the College of Financial Planning ever since... You know, the early 80s. That's right. When financial planning first came uh, around you know, as an industry and a. It, well, in the, in the early days as a profession in, in the 80s. And uh, everyone needs to address financial planning. So call us at Lewis Financial Management if you have questions about your personal situation. 919 872 That's 919 919- USA 7000. All right, let's take Mike's call. Hi, Mike. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I had a, I have, I'm full-time employed, but I also have a small business on the side. Yeah. And I have used diversion at a very limited, uh, to a limited extent to divert money to my kids, particularly when they do things to help out in the business. Uh-huh. I've always wondered what the standard is. How much can I pay them? Can I overpay them as if they were a congressman or something like that? Well, let me get a little bit of information about yourself, Mike. How old are you? 55. You're 55 years old, and you're married with children? Correct. All right. Are your kids, how old are your kids? Uh, youngest is 20. 20, and uh, and how many children do you have? Three. All right. 20, and then you've got two others that are older. Right. All right. None of them are living at home? One. Okay. The, the 22-year-old. Okay, 22-year-old the, is the living. The two younger are in school still. Full-time students. All right. Uh, and what's your income, Mike? Uh, it's high. I need some numbers. I, if you're a first-time listener, we, we only work with numbers on this program. I just saw yeah. problems. Are we saying so. 300000 or? Uh, I, I guess uh, probably I, I can't do that. Well, we could just ballpark it. Uh, over one. 
Okay. Okay. All right. So your 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 gross or your net income is over a million. Uh, no, 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 no. A hundred thousand. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Okay. Like a hundred thousand. Okay. Yeah. All right. A hundred thousand dollars. All right. Yeah. So you've got a gross income or a net income of a hundred thousand. Gross. That's your gross income. All right. And how much of that comes from the business? Probably fifteen. Fifteen thousand comes yeah. from the business, and does the business have any expenses? Because that that fifteen thousand is gross, right? Yes, and 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 yes, there are some expenses, uh, and 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 I do a good job about maintaining those and writing them off. But as I say, it's it's extra money that I really don't want to have to pay taxes on because of self employment, and that's why I'm interested in how that could be diverted legally. Well, it's it's not a matter of how much. Uh, the real question is. What is the child doing for the business? Uh, he, it's a service-based business, and he contributes. He provides services to the business. Okay, so uh, do you give him an hourly wage? Yes. All right. Well, uh, I would say give him the comparable hourly wage for the type of comparable person uh, that you employ in a comparable position. Right. That's, you know, that, that, that's a, it's a very simplistic answer, but I believe in not trying to play games with the IRS. Oh, and I'm total, in total agreement, which is what I have done. But I guess the question uh, becomes, and I have had accountants in the past who have had different feelings about how liberal you can be with the amount that you pay them. Uh, and, and they tell me that the IRS really doesn't get involved that much in what the hourly wage is. So I've never taken a chance in doing anything but straight by the book. My question was, could I could I pay twice whatever the market rate might be? I mean, is the IRS going to say, wait a minute, you shouldn't be paying that much money to an employee, contract employee. They get 1099. Yes, they have the right to do that. The IRS has the right to do whatever they want. Well, I know that. I'm saying, but what's the likelihood... And, and well, words, I mean, you're, 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 that's like asking me, do I, do I think you're going to get audited? That's, you know, that, that's not this type of program that we're on here. We solve financial problems. We don't try and go ahead and tell you how you can uh, play games with the IRS. My view is uh, that you just be very conservative. Don't try and go beyond because if the IRS audits you, then you're guilty. As far as I'm concerned, I never... I, that's that's uh, the question. Guilty of what? Of whatever they say. If they say you owe X amount... Out, then you then that's what you're going to pay for overpaying for, for paying someone 50 an hour instead of 25 an hour right or for for or maybe they want documentation how many hours yeah. did he work did you keep timesheets yeah uh and so on yeah uh i know many a time in our in, in our firm uh we have hired our children and our children have punched time clocks and they just in right. there and they there's no uh they don't get paid any more than any of the other employees there yeah. you know and part of it is you don't want uh you don't want jealousy with your other employees that are probably, you know, have skills, skill sets higher than your, your kids. But I can understand your, your feeling of wanting, you know, to do the max on what you can pay your kids. So No, I, I've always gone straight by the book. I, I got audited in 1982 and they had to okay. give me money back. Okay, so right, Mike, well, if you want to call the office for an appointment, we schedule appointments during the week, yeah. call the office, and if we can answer any more questions, then my secretary set at a time, we get together face-to-face, -to -face, and I'll go through all the numbers and look at your tax return. Thank you very much. You Thank sure you, Mike. Thanks for calling. If you'd like a personal consultation with either Doug, Linda, or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 
WPTF. Well, Doug, for clients with chronic illnesses, they um, need to deal with the same estate documents that we all do, but they need to consider some other things. What would be your advice for chronically ill clients? Yeah, estate planning for the chronically ill is very crucial. Of course, we're going to have to have the basic six items, five or six items. We have to have, first of all, a power of attorney. And when we say chronically ill, you know, to some of our listeners, our hearts go out to you. Some folks are battling cancer and some have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or COPD. Some folks have MS or Lou Gehrig. So whoever you are out there, our hearts go out to you. And these are all also personal to us because all of these have touched our lives as far as our clients over the 32 years we've been doing this. So Yes, so... It is important to address uh, estate planning issues at the end stages of life. So while lawyers encourage everyone to name additional agents in case the first power of attorney agent is unable or unwilling to serve, it's imperative that you name several of them if you have a chronic illness. And your power of attorney, your agent, could conceivably be responsible for paying all your bills, handling your tax returns. But you want to make sure that that power of attorney that you sign is what we call a durable power of attorney, which means that it will remain valid or durable even if you later become incompetent. That's the first thing that you have to have. Now, what's the second thing you have to have? I would say a health care power of attorney. Just as with the financial power of attorney, you need to name several successor agents on the health care power of attorney. And it might be smart to consider whether your agent has knowledge, sufficient knowledge of your disease and the decisions that might be required. The living will. This is a third and very important document. The language used in standard forms may not be sufficient or uh, be sufficient to fit all of your needs. If you're living with a chronic illness, you're going to have special needs. Procedures that might be heroic for a healthy person in his 20s may just be essential for you. So carefully differentiate whether different standards should be applied to an acute situation versus a chronic situation when dealing with the language in the living will. Yeah, the living will should also address a lot of different decisions like lifestyle choices, whether you want to be in a nursing home uh, or at home. What about health issues and Uh, And, of course, the obvious one, end-of-life issue. The fourth item. it's important to have a will drawn up. That's right. That's the fourth one, Linda. you got to have a will. Uh, If we have the fifth one, which is a revocable living trust, then the will, the fourth one, should simply pour over to the revocable trust. You've been listening to Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com and listen again next Sunday at 6 p.m. for more Money Matters with the Lewis family on News Radio 680 WPTF.